welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh Cedar. Today, I'm excited to welcome to the show Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Dr. Barrett is a leader in the field of psychology and neuroscience. She's a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University and holds appointments at Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, and is the chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Harvard University. Today, Dr. Barrett is generous with her time and shares lessons from her book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain and draws from previous research that you may be familiar with from her previous book, How Emotions Are Made. I think you'll enjoy today's episode to learn more about how we can all use lessons from neuroscience to better understand our body's needs and the moods that come along with them. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, thank you for joining us on the Therapy for Real Life podcast today. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. And you are a leader in the field of effective sciences. And one of the things I most appreciate about your work is you have a talent for explaining very complex ideas in clear and simple terms. And I invited you on the show today because I love your work explaining the body budget. Could you share with our listeners, what is the body budget? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think this is one of the most important concepts that people, uh, for people to understand, um, particularly now when uh, we are surrounded by, you know, really stressful conditions. So the most important job that your brain has is not to think or to feel, or to see, or to hear, it's to control the systems of your body. And so you don't have one system in your body, you have hundreds of systems. And the technical term for the brain's control of the body is called allostasis, it's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. But the, the analogy that works really well, I think, is to think about the brain running a budget for your body. Your brain is not budgeting money. It's budgeting all of the resources that are required to run a body, like water, glucose, um, so all the forms of glucose that you can eat, um, salt, um, and um, oxygen, and other nutrients that are necessary to keep all your organs running to keep you alive and well. And, you know, you have lots of, lots of systems and like, you know, trillions of cells in your body that require oxygen and, and salt and glucose and so on. Mm -hmm. And so you can think about your brain as the financial center of a multinational corporation. It's got a lot of um, budgeting to do in order to keep you alive and well. And you can think about deposits to your body budget like sleeping and mm. eating and you know being with people that you love and trust which mm-hmm. you know turns out to be um 
a deposit in a, in a metaphorical sense, because it makes it easier for your brain to keep your body budget in balance. Mm -hmm. And then we also spend. We spend when the two most expensive things that your brain can do is move your body. So not just in exercise, but literally when you walk or wake up in the morning um, and, um, and learn something new. That is be faced with something that is novel or unexpected um, and um, have to learn about that new thing that turns out to be metabolically expensive. Mm -hmm. So you can think about your brain as making decisions about what to spend and when and based on what returns it's going to receive. And sometimes we um, spend immediately uh, with the assumption that we're going to get a return on our investment. That would be like exercising or going to school or learning a new skill or talking to people that we don't agree with because we are attempting you know, to maximize some other, some other gain. And sometimes we um, uh, spend a lot, metabolically speaking, out of our buddy budget and we don't expect the reward to come for a really long time, like going to school or mm -hmm. learning to uh, a new skill like playing the piano or learning another language. Mm -hmm. So basically your brain is running a budget for your body and it's, it's, it's estimating the needs of your body and it's attempting to meet those needs before they arise. Mm -hmm. And that your brain is doing this 24 seven from the moment that you're born until the moment that you die. Well, I want to get to predictions and how we make estimates about our body budget in a moment. But as, I, as you tick off all those yummy ingredients in the body budget, sleep, exercise, social contact, you're naming all the things that most of us are experiencing great deprivation mode uh, now, whether it's COVID or out on the West Coast, we've had months of smoke and um, people are having fair doses of cabin fever. And in your latest book, you describe uh, the physical effects that we can experience in deprivation mode and how our, our personal body budgets are actually linked to the body budget of others. Could you talk about that a little bit and how we regulate, how we learn to regulate the body budget? Sure. So I'm going to, there are going to be a couple of highlights here that I want to really focus on. One is that um, your brain runs this budget for your body and it's doing it all the time. And you are largely unaware that it's happening. So uh, right now you and I are sitting here talking, maybe listeners are sitting quietly listening and to them and to us, it feels like, you know, we're calmly having this conversation inside your body. However, there's a huge drama going on. Um, you know, your lungs are expanding and contracting and your heart is beating and stuff is like, you know, like racing around in your blood and all of this body budgeting activity um, is, is largely, you're largely unaware of it. Thank goodness, because uh, if you were aware of it, you would never pay attention to anything outside your own skin ever again. 
Oh, I'm so curious if that happens to you being such an expert in this field, how do you pay it? You know, how do you get outside of that experience when you are so attuned, you know? Yeah, well, you know, anyone can go into, um, into a, a floating tank, like a sensory deprivation tank, they call it. It's not really sensory deprivation though. It's, it's what's interesting about it is that, and most cities have these tanks where you go in, they match the temperature to your body temperature, they, you put in earplugs and you are in the complete dark and you're floating basically in salt water uh, like you would find you know, in the Dead Sea. And after a couple of minutes, you're not hearing, you're not seeing, you're not feeling any touch. So, so the um, exteroceptive senses, the senses from the outside world are, they go silent. And you, and then this emerges this like cacophony of um, sound and feeling that is going on inside your body. It's really a remarkable, remarkable experience. Yeah. Um, I just returned from a four day silent retreat and experienced kind of the reverse of that when I came back to modern life. And I can't believe what we expect people to pay attention to an email, a coffee alert of the garbage, I, who knows what, all the things going from zero to like 160. Well, and each of those little, um, each of those little prompts or requests for your attention has mm -hmm. a metabolic cost mm -hmm. that you're not aware of, but that you are paying or resisting those um, prompts are also metabolically costly. And so I guess my point is, one point that I wanna make is that um, all of this drama, body budgeting drama going on inside your body, you are not wired to experience directly the way we, you know, with, with a lot of detail, the way that we see and hear things. Instead, evolution has fashioned humans with a general sense of feeling, feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, feeling really worked up, feeling you know tranquil. This is what um, people usually call mood. It's what scientists like me call affect. Um, mm -hmm. But it's this general kind of feeling that gives you a, a sense of how your body budget is doing. When your body budget is is um, you know um, solvent, you're you're usually feeling okay. And when your body budget is uh, running a deficit, you feel like crap. And when your body budget is practically bankrupt, you are depressed. You have a hard time moving your body. You have a hard time getting outside your own head. Um, uh, and so the way to think about these simple feelings, which are not emotions, right? So these simple feelings come from body budgeting that are with you all the time. They're really properties of consciousness. They don't tell you what is going on in your body. They really just tell you whether your body budget is balanced or not doing so well. Um, and what your brain is doing is it's attempting to make sense of these signals. So it's very easy to turn um, an unbalanced body budget, the feelings that come from that, to conjure out of that anger or anxiety or you know, sadness or, um, or, or any negative emotion. Similarly, um, you know, when your body budget is, um, is doing well, you know, it's much easier to make awe, gratitude, 
compassion and so mm -hmm. on. Um, the last thing I'll say to answer your question about other people is that, you know, humans are a social species. And what that means, among other things, is that we, we make deposits and withdrawals metaphorically into each other's body budgets. So humans did not evolve to have their, you know, we didn't evolve so that a single brain manages the body budget of a single person. Your body budget is not managed by you alone. It's also managed by uh, the people around you. And sometimes that management is deliberate like caregivers with their children or spouses or lovers or friends. And sometimes that impact is, um, you know, not planful. So you and I right now are managing each, each other's body budgets, even though we've never met in person, mm -hmm. um, there are many signals that my brain can um, infer from uh, your movements. Even, you know, you're, even though I'm not conscious of your breathing rate, um, my brain can still track it by subtle movements, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that you're, that you're making. And so if we like each other and we trust each other, our, our movements can synchronize, our breathing can synchronize, our heart rates can synchronize. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can text three little words to someone halfway around the world and affect their body budget instantaneously. They don't have to see me, they don't have to hear my voice, they don't, right? And so the, the thing to understand about body budgeting is that, you know, the best thing for a human nervous system, a human body budget is another human. Mm -hmm. And the well, worst thing is for a human but yeah, is another human. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're saying that emotions serve a function as if almost like where there's smoke, there's fire. Sometimes it's firecrackers, sometimes it's a bomb, but they give you a hint of what's going on. And we know that emotions are the only thing to motivate behavior. And so that social connection becomes a loop, a self-sustaining loop. like Yeah, so I would say that's certainly true of emotions, but I would say it's true of, of mood or affect more generally, because mm -hmm. there are there you're always in some state of mood or some state of affect. Mm -hmm. Sometimes your brain will turn that into an emotion, and there's a whole complex way by which this happens, but a lot of times it doesn't. And in fact, right now, you know, when we are all, many of us living in conditions that seem perfectly designed to bankrupt a human body budget, frankly, mm -hmm. um, sometimes thinking about it that way and not, not conjuring uh, anxiety or, you know, not understanding your own simple feelings and, and physical sensations as anxiety, as um, anger, as, um, uh, you know, weariness, you know, not turning it into an emotion can, can actually be helpful. Mm. You call that the skill of diffusion to be able to step back and look at it clinically to be able to respond. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes I guess what I would say is sometimes the best thing for when you're feeling really dragged out and, and, and really weary, mm -hmm. um, is, uh, to have a drink of water or to take a nap. 
Mm-hmm. It's not nece- it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something psychologically wrong that you have to yeah. deal with in a psychological way. Sometimes yeah. that is helpful, but mm-hmm. it's sometimes it, it, it doesn't have to be that. I've shared your concept of the body budget in therapy or in conversation. I, I see this aha look on folks' face of like, oh, you mean I don't have to take this personally? It could be a physical need. It could be uh, a cultural deficit that we're still um, working on. And a, a recent guest of the show was Anne Helen Peterson, who wrote the book on how millennials became the burnout generation and uh, gives a very healthy critique of why we even have the self-care industrial complexes because we don't have a safety net. And, you know, talking to her, it felt like have, talking to an accountant, talking about that macro body budget deficit of there's no, there's nothing that an individual can do uh, to balance the overall deficit that we're all experiencing, which is a very depressing and demotivating thought. And yet she maintained, um, you know, what she tries to do about it is participate in microclimates of resistance to burnout culture. But that is a, quite the uphill battle when you think about managing an individual body budget in, a, in food deserts or social deserts or economic deserts. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really, really challenging um, time. And when I say that, I don't just mean the moment, this particular moment in time. I mean this particular era in time. You know, if if we had to design a social environment that would easily bankrupt a body budget, a human body budget, it would be the one that we're living in, where you know, there are many people living under real economic constraints, w- which will um, tax their body budgets in very real ways. We, um, uh, we don't sleep enough, we don't eat healthfully, we don't exercise enough. We, um, we have rising, even very small amounts of carbon dioxide in the air, just, just really, really small amounts can affect body budgets in a very profound way of mammals, actually maybe even invertebrates as well, but living creatures you know, that, that breathe oxygen are very sensitive to the amounts of carb- carbon dioxide in the air. And so even something very slight like that, which you wouldn't necessarily recognize in any conscious way can actually affect your body budget. Um, and there's social media and you know another thing that's very hard for a human body budget is um ambiguity or uncertainty um so i mean when i say hard i mean expensive so put all of these things together and it's really not surprising that we have a booming um self-care industry and that we have record numbers of people developing depression um which is you know the world health organization um is projecting that it will be the leading cause of death, outstripping heart disease, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometime in the next decade. It's not surprising that we have, you know, um, an opioid crisis. Um, you know, opioids, I mean, there are many reasons. A crisis, you know, like the opioid crisis doesn't happen because of one factor, right? There isn't one simple cause. There are many, many, many causes that combine to produce this tsunami of a problem. But one of the issues is that uh, opioids are really good for 
turning down the dial on the distress that you feel when you have uh, a body budget deficit. So you can continue to function with that deficit and just turn down that dial of distress, um, which is signaling to you that you have this, that you have a deficit and you should be doing something about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important for people to understand the functional reasons why they do anything to remove that layer of shame that is such a barrier for from them to get alternative coping strategies that can soothe that, that same part of the brain that is so distressed. Yeah, and I really, one of the things I really stress is that when you feel uncomfortable, when you feel um distressed, when you feel weary, it's not because you're weak. It's not because you're a snowflake. It's not because, it's because you're human. And this is how humans, human bodies work and human brains work. So some people might be a little more sensitive. Some people might be a little less, but everybody who, you know, everybody has a body budget and everybody feels distressed when that body budget um, is uh, running a deficit. And you know, the other, the sort of enlightening message I think is that you also have some control over your body budget. Not everybody has control over everything, but everyone can find a place to have control over something. And so there's always something you can do. And as I've said many times, it's important to understand that you have some uh, control over your body budget, um, not as a way of blaming yourself when you feel crappy, um, but as a way of understanding that sometimes something is your responsibility because you're the only one who can fix it, not because you are culpable or blameworthy in some way. So, you know, if I have a body budget that's a little tougher to manage than my husband's because I'm a woman and I, you know, have uh, various things going on, um, you know, like a menstrual cycle, for example, um, uh, that doesn't make me weaker than him, but it does mean that my body budget burden is maybe a little bit bigger. Um, And um, uh, I'm not generally saying that um, women have a bigger body budget than men, but I am saying mine is, mine is uh, much more ranging than my husband's. He's, his seems to be. Yeah. And there are experiences that are statistically significant that women do go through and experience that are, are socially different than, than men. Well, this is also true, but it's also true that the hormones that we think of as having one function also Mm -hmm. serve as um, regulators, metabolic regulators, like estrogen and progesterone are metabolic regulators. Cortisol is not a stress hormone. It's a hormone that your, that your brain directs its secretion to uh, to get um, glucose into your bloodstream quickly when your brain is predicting that you have a big outlay uh, Mm -hmm. that you need, you know, you have something really costly that you're about to do. Mm-hmm. Um, even dopamine and serotonin, uh, which, you know, are thought of as dopamine is often thought of as a reward neurotransmitter and serotonin as a mood neurotransmitter, these chemicals that work in our brains, actually they evolved, you know, over 500 million years ago as metabolic regulators. So all of these chemicals are, you know, under the hood, they're actually helping to, um, sustain and keep your body, body budget, um, mm-hmm. kind of working. 
I love the way that you explain that each of us has a responsibility to regulate our emotions. Now that we have this information that's at our disposal, which is quite a pivot for someone who um, maybe took it personally or did experience it in, in um, kind of as that blame. But it makes me think of all the folks who are stuck between that rock and a hard place of not having had emotional intelligence modeled for them in their childhood and now waking up to the responsibility of doing something about it and feeling overwhelmed by cortisol and glucose and oh my gosh, she's gone to school forever and knows a lot about this. What would you say to someone just getting started to understand um, their body budget? Yeah, so what I would say, first of all, is, um, you know, uh, I think um, I'm not going to go into a lot of my personal history here, but I will say that, you know, I grew up in, in very um, difficult circumstances financially and socially. And it's true that I've gone to school for a really long time, but one of the things that I've tried to do and that other people try to do too is to take complicated scientific research and distill it down to its most basic elements. So that doesn't mean dumbing things down. It just means stripping away a lot of the detail. You know, really good science communication is about knowing what to leave out. And um, so, you know, I might talk about this differently uh, and I'm glossing over some details here that I don't necessarily think people need to know but if I were talking to a colleague, you know, I might, I might, um, I, I might use more detail. The point is that science, philosophy, these are these are tools for living. That, that's 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 why we've been talking about these um, ideas and issues really since the beginning of of civilization. Um, and so I think um, there are TED talks. There are books like Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. I deliberately wrote it as a set of little essays that are bite-sized little essays. You can get through one of those essays in 20 minutes um, or maybe half an hour or, or even less in certain cases. And each one has a little nugget that you can use in your life. And it also invites you to think about connect these nuggets to think about big issues uh, regarding what it means to be human and regarding, you know, so the fact that it doesn't really tell you what to think, it just help. it invites you to think. So for example, now that you know that we are the caretakers of each other's body budgets, what will that mean about how you speak to someone or about um, how you will interact with someone? Um, now that you know that your own, your, your sort of, your most miserable feelings and your most elated feelings really come from this body budgeting that your brain is doing, will that lead you to prioritize sleep a little more? Will that, you'd be surprised how much just sleeping a little more um, can actually, you know, sh shift, think of it as, you know, you're, you're, you've taken a tax away from the body budget, right? Or for example, you know, each time you, each time you are stressed, what is stress? Stress is your brain preparing your body for a major metabolic outlay. Mm -hmm. And when that metabolic outlay doesn't come, you pay a little tax. 
for having mm -hmm. ramped up like that and you keep paying that tax and it it doesn't build up over you know one or two times it doesn't build up over 20 times it builds up over years you're paying this tax and you might not see the effects down the road um you know until mm -hmm. um 10 or 20 years when all of a sudden you have a metabolic disorder mm -hmm. so you if you know that then you can do things in the moment that will potentially change your future. You know, sometimes I think to when, you know, when I'm interacting with somebody, let's say I give a talk and somebody doesn't like it, or one of my colleagues, you know, criticizes my, one of my papers or whatever, my daughter, you know, is 21. So, you know, um, we often, you know, I sometimes think to myself, right. So that person's opinion of me is like electrical activity in their brain. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And it dissolves the impact on my body yes. immediately. I, I love to hear you talk about that. It's like, what does this person do when they're having a bad day? I, you know, I know as a therapist, having all these tools, it feels like, oh, I should be able to uh, perform them perfectly, right? But that's just, you know, my perfectionism coming out, and I can notice that neuro wiring as well and see it come out and. Um, wonder if I need something to satisfy my budget, body budget, like a glass of water or a meal. Exactly. And I think, so I think that there are these tools that are available to us, even if we're not neuroscientists, there are books, there are podcasts like this one, there are, um, there are TED talks, you know, there's a lot of people attempting to um, communicate science in digestible ways for people to use it as a tool and hopefully the goal is to um, you know, allow you to be a little bit more compassionate to others and to yourself. Um, and also, but also to realize like where you have control and how much control you have and, and where you really don't have control. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to end for today. Thank you, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. I think if listeners want to take a few moments um, after the show to check out uh, Dr. Barrett's uh, latest work and also maybe uh, take some notes on their own body budget of what they can control and can't control and where they might focus their efforts. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Therapy for Real Life also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Real Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops, and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs. 